So this, this idea of fixtureless robotics where you even don't even need to have rigid fixtures around the part to build it out that the robot can just hold apart as another robot is bringing this piece in and another robot is welding down the seam. Having that all done uh, without the need for any sort of complex hardware to design and assemble these pieces is really kind of that next phase that we're, we're really working towards. This is the Thomas Industry Podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Thomas Industry Podcast. I'm Megan Conniff. Today, I'm joined by Chris Adams, Senior Programs Manager at the ARM Institute. Also known as the Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing Institute, it is funded by the Office of the Secretary of Defense and is part of the Manufacturing USA Network. The ARM Institute works to strengthen U.S. manufacturing through innovations in advanced manufacturing technology to prepare current and future workforces to work alongside advanced technologies. With a goal to foster collaboration between those who create and maintain robotics and those who leverage it, this episode dives into how Chris got into robotics manufacturing and how emerging technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence are helping manufacturers augment factories and uptick production. Let's get into the episode. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. We heard Thomas cover the robotics industry and how it's changing the manufacturing landscape, and we're really excited to learn more about the ARM Institute. Um, can you start by telling us about ARM's mission? Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you for having me. Um, we've been looking forward to this for a long time, and it's great to, to talk about ARM and some of the projects that we're working on and, uh, and what our mission is. So uh, ARM's mission is, I think it's pretty simple. Um, it's to lead the way to a future where both people and robots are working together to respond to our nation's our nation's greatest challenges and to develop and produce the world's most desired products. Excellent. Now, there are often mixed reviews on how robots can help our industry and our community of makers and inventors. How does ARM work with manufacturers to integrate robotics technology into factories and create positive experiences for both workers and business owners? Sure. I think one of the most important things is um, our, our mission and our communication to these different companies. We're never in a position where we are trying to replace a person uh, with a robot. That's not our intent. That's not our goal. That's not our objective. We want to get that person out of a dull or possibly dirty or possibly dangerous environment. So looking at applications where you're applying a thermal coating um, and it might be harmful to breathe in or it's dirty and the person has to spend half an hour putting on a Tyvek suit, you know, taping it down to themselves, putting on a breathing apparatus. It just takes them all to even get into the environment to do the work. And then you know, whenever they come home from work, they have to get a shower because they're all dirty. Um, you know, they're concerned about what they've been breathing in for days and weeks and months and years. So what we're really looking to do is trying to find these applications where um, we're, we're removing that person from that environment and letting the robot go do that, that job. And the person is you know, back somewhere safe. They are wearing the same clothes they came in to uh, work with. They don't have to go get a shower as soon as they come home. Um, that the way that they want to work is the same way that they are, are leaving work. And are just letting the robot kind of take over that that work environment that might not be the best for a person to be in. And while that person's back kind of overseeing the robot, they are the expert. They've done that job for years and years. So they know what to look for when the robot doesn't best know what to look for. So it can coach the robot. It can tell when it's doing the right job or it can adjust it uh, whenever it's not doing uh, what it needs to do. And then the way that ARM kind of integrates themselves in this whole process is through a vehicle that we call as the project call process. So 
we work with our government team. Uh, we work with our technical advisory team and our stakeholder team to say, hey, where are the big things in um, the industry that need robotics to be applied to that we think is the best bang for a buck, if you will, and to use our project call to attack those areas and say, hey, when it comes to artificial intelligence, when it comes to the creation of uh, large data and infrastructures, um, you know, using big data sources, how do we attack that? How do we attack inspection systems? How do we apply codings and paintings and masking using robotics? Um, and so we release a project call and then our consortium members propose projects that they think are valuable to themselves and to the ARM ecosystem. And then ARM selects those projects for funding. And then that's how we start to make a dent slowly but surely into different industries from textile to aerospace to automotive. Um, you know, you name it, we've done a, a large uh, array of projects over the past six years um, in many different industries and applications. There's some examples of projects that are focused on bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. Sure. So one of the big ones we've been focused on lately is the textile industry. Um, so pretty much any shirt that you grab at the store, you'll see is, uh, just generally speaking, not made in the U.S., right? It's made overseas somewhere. Um, and that was really apparent during COVID when trying to find masks, trying to find um, gowns for hospital workers to work in. And you know, at the end of every shift where maybe they were they're going to use that again again the next day. They suddenly like cone it. Um, things like mobile tents, right? We had to create a lot of mobile tents during the COVID era uh, because hospitals were just being overwhelmed with the amount of patients that they had to deal with. And that's not really something that is onshore in the U.S. right now. And we're really trying to make a concerted effort to reshore things like that so that whenever we need to produce PPE, we need to produce tents, we need to produce textiles, that we can do that here in the United States. Um, so that's been a big mission for us lately is that specific industry just because of how much of that manufacturing takes place overseas that we really had a gap in that during the COVID era and that was like became very apparent very quickly. So specifically the textile industry I'd say is the biggest one right now and it's taking a while but we've done some very interesting projects lately. Um, one of them is with a company called Sobo uh, where they've actually developed this chemical solution to stiffen fabrics to make them rigid. So one of the biggest complications with picking up a, a t-shirt is that it's uh, it's very clumsy, right? You have no idea how to grasp it, how to pick it up. Um, it's, it's not very predictable and robots like simple, predictable, consistent movements. Um, if things are always in the right place and you can work around that, um, it makes their lives a lot easier. So by it being able to integrate a chemical into say a pair of jeans or a t-shirt, that something makes that structure rigid, so it's easy to pick up and place and sew together, um, you can start to integrate robotics into that. So we've done a lot of projects on um, you know, sewing blue jeans together, sewing t-shirts together. And what's great is that a lot of these, pro these products, before they go out to the consumer, get washed anyways. So even if this chemical wasn't in it, that t-shirt, that pair of jeans would still get washed before it went out and was on a store shelf. So that chemical gets washed out during that process and is completely removed and can go on um, to uh, to the consumer, uh, which is which is pretty great. Um, lesson one too, this even before you get to the sewing off the process is just getting parts off of a cutting board. You know, so if you have a long uh, assembly line and you're cutting the shape of a jean or a t-shirt, you need to get that to the sewing operation. So how do you grab it from that board and pick up and place it somewhere else? So we're doing a lot of work in that. 
area too. Um, and uh, we've done a lot of work in aerospace, like I said, and automotive, trying to um, better uh, inspect uh, defects, catch them faster. So I'm sure every person probably that has on the car has got that warranty card saying, hey, we found something wrong with your car, right? And we need to take it in for a warranty repair. So how do we enable automotive manufacturers to be able to catch defects a lot faster in the process? And so we've actually done a project with uh, Stellantis, formerly Fiat Chrysler. Um, they've partnered with uh, a company called Aris Technology to develop a inspection system that can inspect a part in 3D, take hundreds of thousands of data points, recreate that image in a 3D model, compare it to the original 3D model that the CAD designer created for that part, and it can show you in a 20-page report all the high spots, all the low spots, where it is within spec. And then that person can then go and decide, is this part good enough to continue down the assembly line, or do we have an issue with it that we need to fix? And we've actually been able to take an inspection that used to take hours upon hours down to seven or eight minutes. So when you're thinking about catching defects a lot faster, catching problems a lot faster, the goal is to make that warranty card not as uh, uh, not as often in your mailbox, just due to the fact that you can catch defects um, significantly faster. Love those very specific examples, uh, many of which we're all quite familiar with in our everyday lives. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So if a company wants to reshore some of its processes or operations, where should they begin? Sure. So there's definitely a few ways uh, to begin that process. Um, one way is to become an ARM member. Uh, the ARM Institute is a consortium-based organization. So what that means is we have over 400 members from the top aerospace companies such as Raytheon, um, Lockheed Martin, Airbus, Boeing, all the way down to startup companies that have just begun developing their own robotic solutions and everywhere in between. Integrators, all the major universities uh, across the United States are all um, our members that put together project teams to work on specific solutions. So if they want to become an R member, you immediately get access to all the information that these teams have already done on past projects. So from software to CAD designs of end effectors to laydowns of the robotic work cells, all the information is available once you become an R member. Uh, you can also go on our website. We do have synopsis of the different projects that we've worked on and some of the different teams that we've uh, worked with on these projects. Um, and you can reach out to them, see if they can team up with you to produce uh, innovative solutions for your different projects. Um, but that's really probably the, the best way I would suggest to start that whole process to to reshore things to the, uh, to the U.S. ARM was recently awarded part of the Build Back Better grant. Tell us more about the project. Absolutely. And this is something I'm very intimately involved with and very excited about. Um, so we teamed up with some other organizations within Southwestern PA. Um, and the overall scope of ARM's part of that project is to work with small, medium-sized manufacturers in the southwestern PA region to help them integrate robotics into um, their shop floor. So if a company is getting overwhelmed with projects, with trying to produce parts, and they just can't keep up with the amount of orders, or they don't have enough people to work, and they're like, hey, we would be able to produce a lot more parts if we could just automatically be feeding our CNC machine over the weekend, but we just don't know where to begin. Or I don't know, I have this crazy idea, but I don't know if the return on the investment is there right now. Arm, can you help me out? So what we're actually doing and in the process of is building out what we're calling the Robotics Manufacturing Hub. So at our facility in Pittsburgh at Mill 19, we are actively right now getting robots installed, 
Um, and we actually have uh, a robotic wanting to sell on order as well. That should be here by the end of the year um, to help those small, medium sized manufacturers to figure out if this is of value to them or not, and if they're going to get their return on investment or not. So we're going to work with them. We're going to get integrators into the loop as well to really understand that process. What do they want at the end of the day? Where do they think that the robots are going to be able to be of most benefit to? And then scope out their entire project. Um, and if the situation presents itself to knock it up at our facility with parts, with inspection systems, with robotics, to prove out the entire process. So at the end of the day, we're like, this is what it's going to look like in your facility. This is everything that you need. You need robot A, B, and C. You need to buy this as a system. We've done the report. We've shown you the return, your return on investment. Now, go work with this integrator and install that solution at your facility. So there's little to no risk on their part to have a robotic installation at their facility anymore because we've worked with that integrator. We've proven out the process. We They know exactly what it's going to look like. They can see it either virtually or in person. And they have a complete picture of that system before it's ever even installed at their facility. Um, and at least right now, I'm not familiar with any other process or project or um, experience that can provide that. And we're really excited to bring that to um, to our clients and the, the Southwestern PA region. We think it's very exciting. And ideally, we're going to hopefully expand that uh, to a state and, and national level um, over the next few years. That's kind of our, our overall mission with this project. Um, but it's, it's very exciting. And we're working with a lot of great uh, organizations right now to get this thing kicked off. That sounds like an amazing resource for companies. So research shows that over the next decade, more than 4 million jobs in the manufacturing sector will go unfulfilled. What technologies is ARM investing in to augment factories and close some of those labor gaps? Sure. I actually have to start with the labor gap first because we're doing a lot of exciting things uh, on that front right now. So one of those being um, a website that we launched about a year ago called robotscareer.org. Um, and what we've done with that project is to go out and see what are the best training opportunities that are provided across different organizations in the nation um, to learn the building blocks of being a robotic programmer, um, a robotic technician, a robotic integrator, so that you know how to fix the robot if there's a problem with it and it shuts down, shuts down and breaks, right? How do you fix it so you can get that thing back online real quick? Real quick? How do you start to understand the concept of designing a robotic work, work cell um, and system so that it's best for your environment, for your facility, so that you can integrate robots into your your plant. And then get building out those education skills so that you can just say, hey, I'm just looking for a two-week course because I got this new robot. I have no idea how to program it. Teach me, a, you know, show me a, a crash course of a, um, of a training that's available to me online you know, that I can do at home. Or if you want to go back to school because you just want to do a, a total career pivot and want to go do a two-year or four-year degree, you know, what are some schools around me that offer these kinds of, of uh, training opportunities? Um, and so robotsfree.org is a great way to go on and see what's available to you locally or online to provide you that training, right? And we've worked with a lot of uh, organizations and with universities and other uh, training providers to align what we're talking about when it comes to PLC programming, uh, when we're, we're talking about CAD design and end-effector end design, um, all these different skills that we believe are needed in robotics, 
and aligning that with what they are teaching in their courses. So there's not this disconnect between what we're talking about and what the education side is talking about, that there's alignment between uh, those different terms so that whenever the students are coming out of those programs and looking for jobs, that they're talking to the companies uh, with those uh, in that same language, right? Um, so that's been a multi-year effort and we're really excited about it. And now we're actually getting into the job matching phase too, where that website's going to introduce job postings from these organizations that are our members, but are also local companies that are in need of robotic technicians and robotic integrators and posting that on the site and linking all those skills that um, the education institutes have been talking about to the job posting. So there's direct correlation between the jobs and the education skill. And when it comes to manufacturing, how do we look at designing a, a um, facility that is conducive to robots actually being in use versus just like a person who used to work here and I want them to go work over here now and I want to put a robot in. And that's that work so is maybe not completely optimized to how that person would or how that robot would be working. So looking at a broader picture of what's the best workflow within a building um, and being able to meet the needs that the manufacturing sector uh, needs to produce over, the, over those next few years. It's obviously a very complex challenge. Um, we've worked with a lot of companies right now that they're seeing people retiring faster than they can hire them. Um, and, and I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's an easy fix. Um, and one of those things that we're actively working on right now with a pretty exciting project is those people that have worked in the industry for 20 to 30 years that have that tribal knowledge of information that's not written down in a procedure, they can touch and they can feel apart and they know if it's good or bad. How do you quantify that? There's no way of quantifying these skills that these people have had for 20 or 30 years. So how do we start to capture that? How do we integrate that into uh, learning models and neural networks and systems to be able to capture that data that they have that is going to get lost if there's no other way of, of getting hold of it, right? Um, so there's some some pretty creative ideas that we've come up with where some of it's honestly just recording the person doing a welding job or an inspection and feeding that information in after they've done it multiple, multiple times and building out a database so that um, MSC learning algorithm can pick up on what is it look, what is that person looking for that is good or that's bad and being able to translate that into quantifiable information so that it can be reproduced either by a robot or by another person. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting challenge. Um, but, uh, another way we've been attacking this problem is by developing systems that we call no code programming. So you have a person that can come into an environment and has no idea how to program a robot. But all they need to know is, I know that this part, and say I want to fix my phone, or I want to fix my car, or if I need to fix a, uh, an aircraft component, how do I fix that? But I don't know how to program this robot. But you could know how to maybe use a pair of Microsoft HoloLens glasses. So you can put those glasses on, then you can align the actual object with a 3D model that you can see in your HoloLens. Um, place the object over, over top of the actual object, and then the robot can scan its environment it localizes everything, and then you can start to introduce different um, user interfaces that allow the robot to know where its environment is without you ever actually having to teach it. So we've done a lot of interesting work in that space to to make it easier for uh, people that don't have that programming background to be close to and, and program a robot without having those um, those more complicated uh, coding kind of skills. 
So speaking of technology, what technologies are being used across automation and assembly today and what do you see in the very near future? Sure. So I think today, um, work cells in automation and assembly, like if you would go visit a GE facility or go visit a Boeing or Lockheed facility, um, they're not very adaptive. They are just doing repeatable processes over and over again. So uh, they learn what to do. Somebody came in and programmed that robot. Um, and there's a whole lot of flexibility in what that robot is doing. And what we're really starting to get into um, is having a better sense of the robot, understanding its environment, um, and also being a lot more flexible. Um, so there's actually a project right now that I'm working on uh, with Lockheed Martin called the Frame Project. And the idea is to build a um, a framework, a learning framework that you have a robotic work cell with four or five project or four or five robots, and that robot can essentially build anything that it wants. If you just show it the object that you want it to build, and it's going to figure out its framework of how to assemble it, and what, how we're going to demonstrate that is through um, a CubeSat that. Um, it's just a mock-up that's obviously not going to go to space, um, but showing that, hey, I'm going to build this satellite, and the next satellite that I build is going to be different. And that just by some few simple tweaks, that you don't have to do complex reprogramming of the robot, that just by teaching it um, this framework and it can understand the, at a base level what it needs to do, then it can adjust itself. Or maybe on the fly, hey, I started to build out this satellite and I need to make a modification to it. Um, it can on the fly adjust what it's doing to have that most up-to-date information on the build plan for it. So it doesn't need to be set in stone. And once you hit go, it just kind of goes. Um, you know, lots of people want to special order the car and have exactly how they build it on the website. And it, you know, sometimes I tinker on the GM website and I build up my car and like, well, we don't have that one in stock in the, the 500 miles around you, but these ones are kind of close, right? Um, and so being able to, as they're going down their assembly line, make those easy tweaks to the build process that doesn't require significant programming um, and being able to change and adapt and fly if the engineering team could find out that there maybe is an issue um, and they can just feed it into the assembly plant very quickly. Um, so there's this idea of fixtureless robotics where you even don't even need to have rigid fixtures around the part to build it out that the robot can just hold apart as another robot is bringing this piece in another robot is welding down the seam, having that all done um, without the need for any sort of complex hardware to design and assemble these pieces. It's really kind of that next phase that we're, we're really working towards. And we have a few projects in the pipeline that are um, going to be completed in the next year that are going to attack that very problem. ARM's goal is to bridge the gap between funding and impact. So what are some of the most exciting technologies that ARM is funding or has funded already? Yeah, I'd say... Um, We've done a lot on the inspection process, and I think that's really important because um, to find a person that uh, wants to do inspection on parts for a career is, is pretty hard to find. It's a very monotonous job, but it's very important. I mean, if you have a person that their job is to look for defects on, say, for instance, aircraft blades, um, this is a pretty stressful job. Um, you want to make sure that you're being accurate, um, that you're not missing things. Um, but anybody can say even the best baseball, basketball player um, having their best game of life is going to miss free throws. Um, 
I'm a big hockey fan. And even with a wide open net, the best NHL player will still miss the net, even if it's an empty net or if it's wide open, right? And never going to be perfect in every single circumstance. Um, so this idea of being able to train robots to understand defects, to under, understand damage and how to detect it at a greater rate and success rate of humans, I think is very important um, because we, again, our mission is never to remove a person from uh, a job or to vacate their job with a robot. Um, a lot of the stress on these jobs comes just from the sheer volume of the workload. Um, and so we actually recently completed a project um, where it's not only the inspection of but the sanding of the F-35 cockpit. Um, so that cockpit is, as my understanding is, the most challenging cockpit that GK and Aerospace has ever manufactured in their existence. And that cockpit has very interesting curvatures to it. And the pilot has to be able to see, without any distortion, 365 degrees around that cockpit. And it's a very, very difficult task to do. Um, and so right now there's people that their job, um, you know, Monday through Friday is to have overall sanders and they're just buffing away at the, um, at the acrylic to sand it down, to get all those distortions out of there. Um, and the first thing I noticed whenever I walked into that plant is a lot of people moving their arm up and down because they had a very sore arm. Right. And so you can only imagine doing that for days and months and years going home from the job that you came from uh it's gonna it's gonna wear down on you it's just the, the nature of the beast so how can we get that person out of that environment um but also use them as the expert because they know best of how to do the operation but we just don't want them to have a bum arm whenever they retire right that's not fun for them that's not fun for their family um and that robot can also learn from the human to also understand hey these are some areas that still need to be touched up as well. So while the inspection system is looking for you know, kind of have an extra set of eyes by the person uh, to make sure that the robot is in fact doing the job that it needs to do based off of their knowledge of um, of, of sanding and, and looking for these defects for you know, years and years. How did you get into robotics manufacturing? Uh, it, it was quite a zigzag um, uh, with, with my career. Um, so uh, I started off my career at Penn State. Uh, I went there for mechanical engineering um, and then was actually in the energy industry for about 12 years. Um, and so uh, my my role prior to coming to ARM uh, was to do toy development. And one of the things that really interested me was the warehousing idea of how do you move components around a large warehouse similar to how Amazon does it, but not anywhere near this the scale of Amazon. Um, but how do you start to introduce robotics into a, a warehouse environment um, so that it's easy for parts to move around um, and for pieces to get to where they need to so that you can start to ship out tooling uh, to various parts of the world very quickly. Um, and I found that really fascinating. And that was just the tip of a, a crazy industry when it came to automation across warehousing and how do you localize like, where objects are in an enormous warehouse? You know, are they you know, up three levels on a shelf, or they down on the floor. Can you go grab it without needing a person to be driving a fork truck? Um, you know, all these different uh, capabilities that I was completely unaware of until I went to a trade show, trade show called Modex. Um, and then so when I went to Modex and started to see, not only are these parts driving around autonomously, but now they start to have robots on them. So you can have a robot, you know, 
go over and pick a part out of a CNC machine and drive it over and deliver it to somebody for painting or for packaging or whatever. Um, and I've always had that uh, kind of that dream of you now thinking that robots were cool, um, but knowing that I could actually do a job around Pittsburgh where um, that was something I could do for a, a day-to-day kind of career uh, was really interesting to me. Um, and so just by pure luck, I happened to be at a seminar um, where our former CEO uh, was giving a speech and thought that the Arm Institute was a pretty cool place to work at. And uh, and I've been here for three and a half years now. And what's really cool is growing up, I wanted to be uh, an astronaut. I wanted to work for the Boeings and the Lockheed Martins of the world. Um, and I had a really cool job where I get to work with all those organizations on a weekly and monthly basis. Um, so uh, it's kind of fulfilling that childhood dream without um, being in a particular organization um, like a Boeing or a Lockheed that I get to be at a place like Arm where I get to work with all those teams that are coming up with very cool and innovative products that are going to hit the production line in a couple of years and kind of having a peek behind the curtain of what's coming up in the next couple of years that is going to be the next generation of manufacturing um, that these uh, these workers uh, will, be, will be starting to implement. Excellent. Sounds like 10-year-old Chris would be proud of you. 10-year-old <laughs> Chris is very happy right now. What is one technology that you're excited to see widely used across the industrial space in the future? I really think this idea of of no-code programming is going to really change the game when it comes to adoption. Um, we, If you see any graph, any chart from any of the major robotics OEMs, that we are still, as a country, lagging behind uh, robotic installations compared to our counterparts in Asia and even Europe, right? So I think a lot of that comes down to the accessibility of the robot and not really having uh, the knowledge to code a robot or to program it. So being able to start breaking down these walls of being able to teach it very quickly or adapt the path plan, like, okay, today I'm picking up a ball, but tomorrow I need to pick up a hammer. And the next day I need to pick up a TV. And making those changes very quickly on the fly uh, is going to go a big way so that you don't have to go to school for four years to understand machine learning and neural networks and AI that you can just go in and maybe it's through um, buttons on the robot that you just teach it the points of where to go. Like I said before, maybe the HoloLens and as a user interface of saying, this is a damaged area, go apply a thermal coat here. So just being able to show those different areas, I think it's very interesting. Another one that's actually pretty cool too is, and we have this technology at our facility, is starting to synchronize and close the barrier between industrial robots, which are very precise, um, have large payload capabilities, um, and and do a great job when it comes to the repetitive motions that are required to produce high volumes of parts. But they're also very dangerous, right? These things can pick up cars, but if you happen to just be in a work cell with it, um, which you shouldn't be because they're caged off typically, there's a large potential of, of being hurt um, or or worse, right? But then on the flip side, there's collaborative robots that can be on their desk that are safer, um, that have forced torque feedback in their joints so that if it would hit something or, or if you w- wanted to stop, you just push on it. Uh, the joints realize that it's giving resistance and it stops its motion, right? So those are great to be able to be on a desk and working collaboratively, collaboratively with somebody but their payloads are very small, right? It can't pick up a car. It can maybe pick up um, a computer or a screen, um, you know, lighter parts. Um, so starting to bridge those gaps of how do we make 
these industrial robots behave more like a collaborative robot or you can be engaged with it in a collaborative sense um and so there's a company that uh that has come up with a sensor system called video robotics and they have cameras that will look around the work cell and completely understand what is on the end of the robot what kind of robot is in there and what the process is and it can determine whenever people enter the space with the robot and it puts a uh, light essentially a light beam imagine a, a green and red lightsaber between where the robot and the end effector is and where that object is at the end of the space and it will start to slow itself down and stop as somebody comes into the work cell and whenever that person moves away it gets back to what it's doing and that's really a game changer because if somebody would hit an e-stop at a ge facility or a gm facility um and shut the whole production line down it takes hours to get that thing back up and running again. You have to reset everything. Um, it's it's an, an enormous process. Where with a video robotic system, whenever you walk in and you walk back out, it just goes right back to what it's doing. Whatever that path, that path plan was, whenever it stops, it stops. And whenever you leave, it just whatever that wherever its next point was, it was just going to go right back to that. So really starting to get these very large robots that are uh, very capable of handling large objects that have great benefits to it and to more of a collaborative nature i think it's going to be really a game changer too because you know if somebody maybe wants to go put a sticker on like a warranty label on a refrigerator door right maybe you don't want to roboticize or automate that process because it's really simple so how do you start to break down those walls quite literally of a work cell and allow these robots to be more collaborative with the people and the environment around it so those are the two i'm probably most looking forward to because i think um it's really going to help with the adoption uh in our in our nation to start catching up if you will to to other countries when it comes to uh, the use of robotics we've talked a lot in this episode about um jobs and jobs in manufacturing we like to end each episode of the podcast with inspiring advice for our leader listeners so what is the best piece of career advice that you've received this is going to sound really cliche but but for me it's on it's it's very true um is to find something that you love to do and figure out how to get paid for it right um whenever i came out of college i wanted to travel and so i found a job that allowed me to travel and be an engineer and i developed a lot of skills as far as working on your feet and quickly problem solving because if i was in argentina working on a power plant and something broke i don't have a machine shop that i can just call up and fix a problem right i need to figure out how to fix it and fix it fast that's not something that you learn in college there's nothing that can train you to do that kind of problem solving it is quite literally on the job training, right? Um, and then I love traveling for for that amount of time um, and really getting to fully understand and appreciate uh, the work that that these people do day in and day out um, to quite literally keep the lights on where, where we are, right? Um, and then I wanted to better understand, okay, how do I land out jobs like this? I think that's very interesting. I'm at this job site now, but I, I'm curious now, how did I get here, right? Like, what's, what's the back office support to get here? So then I went and did that. Okay, well, that's very cool. Now I'm interested in how do these, how does the tooling get made for the people that go to these job sites? And then I went and did that. So I would always find things that I find interesting and then go find jobs that I want to do. And I think that as long as you can find a career that just keeps you excited, that once and whenever you get out of bed every morning, you're excited to go do that job. And put, um, it's, it, it helps to keep you inspired to keep doing the missions that um, are the company that you're that you're working for. If 
you are passionate about that work. Um, and, and that's what I've found throughout my career is that I find jobs that, um, align with my passions and I go do it. And then that way it's never, uh, a grind at the office because I'm constantly excited about doing the things that, um, I want to do and I'm learning along the way. Excellent. Well, before we close, where can we find more information about your company and all of the resources we talked about today? Sure thing. Um, so our website is arminstitute.org. Uh, and on there, you have uh, a bunch of information about us, about our past work, um, about any upcoming project calls that are live. Um, all that information's there. And then if you're interested to get some further information than what the website can provide, if you email contact at arminstitute.org, uh, that'll go to uh one of our inboxes within the organization and we'll be able to reach out and, and get you that, that additional information or lead to a follow-up call and uh and go from there chris thank you so much for your time and your curiosity and your expertise we really enjoyed learning uh, absolutely thank you so much for having me this has been great thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the thomas industry podcast if you enjoyed today's interview please subscribe share with a colleague or leave a review this episode is produced by harry k directed by Brooklyn Kioso and hosted by Megan Conniff. <laughs>